Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Before we get on to this podcast, let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. Looking for a sewing machine that's both portable and powerful? Look no further than the legendary Sailrite Ultrafeed LSZ-1. Take it to the marina, store it on your boat. The Ultrafeed goes where you go. This high-performing, heavy-duty machine sews both in zigzag and straight stitch. The Ultrafeed can handle your toughest jobs with absolutely zero loss of power or skip stitches. It breezes through up to 10 layers of Sunbrella canvas and 8 layers of Dacron sailcloth. With the most dependable all-metal internal components, the Ultrafeed is a piece of well-engineered machinery that's built to last. Sailrite has been building the Ultrafeed for over 20 years. This tried-and-true powerhouse machine comes with a 5-year limited warranty and the best customer service in the industry. The machines are assembled, fine-tuned, and tested at Sailrite's manufacturing facility by a team of highly trained technicians. Every machine is calibrated and tested before it's shipped to guarantee both smooth operation and machine quality. Take your sewing skills to the next level with the Sailrite Ultrafeed LSZ-1 sewing machine. I got a letter from one of my listeners. And by the way, if you want to write me, the email address is franz1 at medsailor.com. But this listener asked me to talk more about the ranch. He enjoyed hearing stories about the ranch. So I want to share with you what I did last weekend. And uh, it's actually, it's November 24th when I'm putting out this podcast. And this is, uh, this is Thanksgiving week. We're going over to my daughter's for Thanksgiving this year. This is the first time one of my daughters has, has made the Thanksgiving dinner for us. We're usually making it for them and other people. So we have it pretty easy this year. This is the first time. Well, anyway, last weekend, my elk hunt season started on November 21st, and it goes for about a week, so it goes till next weekend. And I got up early Saturday morning and went up to my spot at the ranch and uh, sat down. Yeah, I got, you get up there before sunup, because elk, you only see elk either early, early morning or late, yeah, late evening. You never see them during the day. They're bedded down during the day. And it was funny. For years, I'd hike around the ranch, and I never even knew there were any elk up there until one of my nephews shot a big elk. And I said, there's elk up here? They said, oh, yeah, you just have to be out at the right time. And, of course, I never was out at the right time. So we've my son-in-law shot one elk a few years ago. I shot another elk a few years before that. So we see him occasionally. Last year, I did not see any. The year before that, we saw about seven seven cow elk, and we had cow permits that were were with, within 300 yards. I was hunting with a friend, and I told him to take the shot, and he missed, and they sort of wandered off. So I never got another shot at that. I should have prepared myself to shoot about the same time because there was plenty of time, but I said, you take the shot. And uh, so that was the last time I had a really good shot at an elk at the ranch. We are meat eaters. We are meat hunters and meat eaters. I'm not looking for big racks. I'm looking for meat to fill up the freezer. 
So I went out on Saturday, and I decided not to go out anymore because I haven't seen any sign of elk this year. And also, I did not want to take on the chore of hauling in a 700-pound animal off the mountain by myself. And I was hunting by myself. And I could have rustled up some help, but I decided it was just, uh, I just didn't want to take on the project. One of our relatives up the valley got an elk about a week ago. And I went up and they were in the process of butchering it themselves. And it is so much work to butcher an elk. Most people take it into a butcher to do it. I've always done it myself. And it is a lot of work. It is a two-day job to butcher an animal like that by yourself. Anyway, I, I decided not to do any more hunting except for Saturday morning. Did hear some coyotes and saw some deer, but I didn't see any elk that morning. And there was a little snow on the ground. It snowed quite a bit about a week ago, and it's melted since then. Most of it's melted since then. Around our house, we still have snow, a little bit of snow, but not a lot. I came back, and, and living up at the ranch in the winter requires that you clear a lot of snow, a lot of snow during the year. So the year before last, we bought a Kubota 70, B7800, tractor with a scraper on the back and a snowblower on the front and when you're running the snowblower it will break shear pins occasionally if you hit something it'll break a shear pin if you hit a rock it'll break a shear pin so i'm constantly stopping and changing shear pins on on the on the snowblower and it's not a problem. It's easy enough to do. Now, once you get the learning curve down, it's pretty fast and pretty easy. But the hardest part right now is getting my tools together, finding the nuts and bolts and washers, and uh, assembling everything. It's all contained in a little box underneath the seat, and you're tearing it apart to get at what you need. So I decided I was going to make it much more organized. So I had some uh, heavy, heavy vinyl from another project a kayak I'd actually built, and I had some leftover vinyl. I said, let's make some pouches and make this organized. So I so I basically made a suspended pouch for all the tools and the, the nuts and the fasteners, the nuts and bolts and washers that I need to change a shear pin. So next time, <laughs> I've got it mounted in the tractor right now behind the seat. So all I have to do is get out and grab the tools very quickly and I have pouches for the nuts and bolts and washers. I have two separate lengths of machine screws that I need. Hex head grade five, I think quarter inch machine screws are the actual shear pins. So I'll be able to do that. But the process of doing this, I took off the doors so I could get into the cab easily. And one of the doors I set down and it fell over. And the glass in the door that keeps me nice and toasty in the winter punctured and I brought that down to the city took it down to an awning company and they said well take it off the frame and then bring it down so I took it off the frame and took it down to them the the door is actually suspended around a frame it's all fabric but it's around a frame and held on by velcro and pop rivets so I had to drill out all the pop rivets to get the uh, the material off the frame and they quoted me about $175 to fix it. I said, how much is the glass? They said the glass is about uh, $21. So I said, sell, sell me the glass and I'll go do it myself. And 
That'll be another project for the Sailrite sewing machine. That is such a powerful little sewing machine. I, I really do enjoy it. I do. So there's a testimonial to the Sailrite sewing machines. And by the way, if you have any suggestions for this podcast, write me franz1 at medsailor.com or any comments you may have. I always enjoy getting emails from you guys. You're my tribe. I really appreciate it. Let's get on to the interview now. I am talking with Nick and Teresa Vanderloo of the YouTube channel Sailing Ruby Rose. And I've watched a couple of your YouTube videos. In fact, uh, before we got on Skype today, I watched your episode number one three years ago. So I want to. I want to learn about you. I want to learn about you and how you got into sailing, and just go from there. So Nick, you start off. Tell me how you became a sailor and what your sailing experience is. Uh, Well, the romantic ideal is I used to be a dentist. That was my chosen career many, many moons ago. So I used to pull teeth from people's heads in London. Um, And I always wanted to own a boat. Now, I never knew how to sail. And um, I decided I saved up all my my money and spent the heady sum of $5,000 on on a boat. Um, As you can imagine, it was my first boat. And I really didn't know what I was buying, despite doing all the internet research. And this was in kind of the early days of the internet. It was back in about 2005. Um, bought the boat in this tiny little yacht club on the east coast of England, where you only got water coming in for two hours every 12, because it was a tidal place. Very small sailing community. Um, and when I bought the boat, I said to the marina manager, look, I, I can't. You know, one of the conditions of me buying the boat is that you're going to have to give me the the, the berth, the mooring here, because I've never sailed a boat before. She looked at me and went, "Really?" And I'm like, "Honestly, I haven't." Um, and she let me she let me stay, um, which was very nice of her. And that was my first purchase. The thing that then really kind of made me fall in love with sailing actually had nothing to do with like you know skipping along on you know cloudless days with the wind in the sails. It was the people that I met. I came from a, <clears throat> a whole community of dentists who were very, pretty obsessed with golf handicaps and Mercedes to people that didn't care how much money you earned, how, what you did, as long as you were in the community and you were happy to sail a boat with them, crew for them, you know, and that, that I fell in love with it that way. Fast forward a few years, Therese, do you want to chip? Yeah, well, I, I met Nick in 2000 and, oh dear. Nine. It was our anniversary last week. <laughs> I'm really bad <laughs> at remembering important dates like our anniversary. Uh, yeah, so we met, uh, yeah, 11 years ago. And I one of the first conversations I had with Nick was how he loved sailing so much. And it was basically all he did with his spare time. And obviously, as you know, the relationship got more serious, I, I lived at, in Australia at the time. And I was contemplating moving to London to, you know, kind of pursue the rela- relationship, as it were. And, uh, yeah, Nick kind of made it clear that if I didn't get on with sailing, then I basically wouldn't see much of him because that is all he does with uh, his spare time. So, yeah, and then I think that my very first sail was it was a typical summer's day in England, which means it was rainy, it was cold, it was grey, and it was very windy. And uh, uh, Nick 
and the rest of the, the, the yacht club were going to this, um, oh, I don't know, this destination about, what, 30 miles away maybe, yeah. across the Thames Estuary. And, and uh, it was a pretty miserable experience, I have to say. And I didn't get seasick, but Nick looked decidedly green for the entire time. And, uh, uh, yeah, it wasn't the, the best kind of introduction, but luckily I persevered and, yeah, I, I kind of I, – I, I didn't quite enjoy it, but I could see that there was potential for enjoyment there. So if only the weather was a little bit more cooperative, I, I could see that maybe it could be quite enjoyable. So so you were still practicing as a dentist at the time then, right? Yep. yep. That was, yeah, that was back in. Uh, yes. Yeah, that was still, I was still working as a dentist then. Okay. Okay. Well, so Teresa, you were not really a sailor until you met Nick. Is that, is that what I'm hearing from you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I've set foot on a boat maybe once or twice in my life, and uh, yeah, Nick kind of made it clear that if I, as I said, if I wasn't, if I couldn't take it up as a hobby, then we wouldn't have much in common. So, but you know, I, I did enjoy it. I think that it was just, uh, it was hard because I was living my own life in London. You know, obviously, you know, we were living t- together, but we worked separately. You know, we obviously had separate social lives. I, I had a, an amazing circle of friends in London, and. On a Friday night, Nick would go down to the boat and hang out with all his sailing friends. And I'd, you know, go into town and hang out with all my friends in, in town. So it kind of was hard for me to see the appeal because, as I said, the, the weather was the weather in England is not lovely. It's not great. And the sailing season was so short. And the weather just always seemed to be, like, at its worst on the day as, you know, as it as that, that's what happens sometimes and it took a few years for me to work out what the, the appeal was because I just spent a lot of my time kind of wet and and a little bit you know kind of well I guess just wishing that it would all be over soon um but you know then you'd have these beautiful days and Nick would buy these you know cruisings these sailing magazines and he'd show me articles of people who you know sailed in the Mediterranean or the Caribbean and I kind of realized that there was perhaps more to it than just uh you know sailing around the east coast of the uk and uh that's kind of when my imagination started to kick in and i started to realize that actually this could be really cool because you know if you could do this and it was sunny and the weather was calm and you know um it was all you know going well and and you were perhaps in a different country somewhere more exotic and yeah i could see that there was definitely something to be said for it so it was a little bit of a yeah my my passion for sailing evolved let's say (laughs) all right so, so walk us through how you became a cruising sailor. When did you retire? When did you buy your first bigger boat? Just walk us through the uh, progression from uh, your first boat to where you are now. Okay, so my first boat was in 2005. Um, when I bought it, my mother said to me, you're not actually going to put that thing on the water, are you? And I'm like, yep. So I, I kind of after a few years, I realized because this boat was so big, it up. I had to learn like engine maintenance. I had to learn how to kind of like fix things. It was like a, it was a real project boat. And um, <clears throat> from there, I bought uh, another boat. I had a 30 foot boat and I actually put some more money into this. I actually, after a couple of years, thought like, I really do love this. I love the community. And by this point, this is before I met Teresa, I had kind of shifted my entire social life down to the yachting community at the weekend. And then when I met Teresa and just just as a slight aside from this, we met while traveling. We were both traveling independently through northern India. Um, I took a break to backpack from 
in, from uh, New Delhi to Kathmandu in Nepal, overland. And she did the same, and she happened to be on the same tour as me. So we bumped into each other in this grotty hotel in New Delhi. And, you know, two weeks later, we were making all sorts of plans to travel the world together. So when she actually moved to the UK, at that point, I kind of realized that I had to make good on the promise that we would go traveling together. And the next thing we did, so we had this other, but we had a 32-foot boat, um, a little hands. Is that your alarm? Yeah, that's my alarm to make sure I give you a call. So I turned it off. <laughs> it could have been your dinner in the oven. We use the same the same ringtone for, for like for fajitas. So I just want to make sure you're burning anything. Um, um, so we had a little 32 foot hand, which was a beautiful boat, and we did actually contemplate taking that on our trap, you know, to go sailing with. It just didn't have. It was too light a displacement boat, and so we went to the boat shows we started doing all the planning and as you know half the fun is in the planning you know you spend so much time we knew that we had an exit strategy which was about five years and i said to therese promised her look if you move to the uk in five years we will go and i kind of i meant it 70 percent. there's always the chance that it wasn't going to work that you know something would you know we'd fall foul of this and so in 2011 so a year after she moved to the uk Hey, we went to a boat show and put the deposit down on Ruby Rose, um, which was a southerly 38. So English built, medium displacement, swing keel, monohull, um, Bermudan rig. Beautiful thing. Really super well built. And we put a lot of effort into de deciding which boat we wanted to buy for our cruising. And it was actually a short list of three. We went to see, we had three boats shortlisted at the boat show. We went to see the first two which were like our kind of like first and second choices. And then we saw that the Sutherland and we're like, no, this is the one for us. The only problem is we didn't have the money for it. So we had to take out a substantial mortgage to, to buy that, to buy that, which we took a good few years to pay off. Um, and then that was it. And then once we had the boat, we're like, well, we can't back out now. Yeah, we're locked in. You know, once you make that financial commitment, then you, you have to see it all through. So, but, you know, by that time we had the boat and it, it, it felt like these dreams that we were having, Having were actually turning into plans, you know, something solid. So it, it all just kind of went from there. But yeah, there was certainly a point of no return, which is when we, we bought, bought that boat. So. And uh, I think four years and 11 months after you moved to England, we set off. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right on time. So I came good at my promise <laughs> for once. Well, that's pretty fast, actually. I mean, I dreamed for probably 10 years before. Well, it took me five years to build my boat and then finally went sailing. But uh, I've been dreaming for 10 years before that. So that's actually moving fairly quickly. And the fact that you paid it off in that period of time means you were making pretty hefty payments for quite a while then, weren't you? No. So, so what happened was we sold we sold the boat. We sold just about everything we had. So, to, And I think the mortgage that we had on the boat was five years. Um and then we had a business, and so we had to sell the business, and we paid the mortgage off with the proceeds of the business sale. So yeah, so we, yeah, the paying it off. Again, I guess you know a lot of people ask us, you know, how do we get over the line? How do we kind of dream? How do we get turn the dream into the reality? And for us, it was one big step for us was actually buying the boat to do the trip, because then, as Teresa said, we were locked in and we couldn't back out. All right, so you decide you're going to go cruising. What was the uh, what was the process? You sold your business. Uh, did you own any real estate that you needed to sell to get rid of that as well? 
So what we did, we I think we had an 18 month, two year plan. And the mm -hmm. reason for that is that we were moving from jobs in London, a really pretty nice apartment in London, um, onto a 38 foot boat. Therese was working at the time as a paramedic. And so she was doing night shifts and I was doing day shifts. So sometimes we would literally get into bed. She'd get into bed two hours before I got up. I got up. So we, would, we didn't see each other that much. So there was this huge question mark, you know, how are we going to get on suddenly spending 365 days a year with each other? You know, are we going to tear each other apart? Is living on a boat going to be for us? So we had this kind of two-year plan where we would put all our furniture into storage, we would rent our apartment out because, you know, by we would get a little bit of rent minus the mortgage repayments to kind of like live on. We had some savings to live on. And we thought, well, if after two years we don't get on with this, then we can come back. And I, I think making that decision that it wasn't final for us and that we could reverse certain processes actually made it a lot more, you know, it was, it was an easier pill to swallow. Okay. Okay. So... Did you quit dentistry then? Is that what happened? Did you quit being a dentist? Yeah, I, I, I did quit being a dentist. Just as a, you know, one part of the backstory that um, yeah, I haven't explained yet, that, you know, often there are, you know, certain things that happen in your life that actually make you change pathway. And during the five-year process between Theresa moving to London and us setting off, um, I ruptured a disc in my back. I was mm. a runner, and um, I just happened to... Literally, I, I sneezed one Saturday morning. I was in bed one Saturday morning. I sneezed and I thought, oops, that, that really doesn't feel good. I'd had a kind of low-grade back pain for a while. And then that was Saturday morning. Monday morning, I woke up and I couldn't feel the lower half of my right leg. So I thought, oh, well, this is a little bit more serious. Anyway, went to a neurosurgeon. He said, you know, you've, you've ruptured a disc. This is the MRI scan. And I said to him, look, what, what do I need to do? He said, you need surgery. We're going to do a discectomy or whatever. I can't remember what the process was. And I said to him, look, I have, um, I own my own dental practice. I kind of, I don't work on a Friday. So, so you do the surgery on Thursday. Can I go back to work on the Monday? And he said, yeah, of course you can. But you can go back, you can go back to work three months Monday. So for me, I couldn't take three months off work. It was, you know, I'd built the business up for nothing. And so um, I said, I'm not having the surgery. So he said he gave me a lot of exercises to do. I took painkillers for a long while. And because of my job, I could only take, you know, paracetamol and an aspirin because, you know, I couldn't take anything that made you groggy. You were kind of like trying to put sharp things <laughs> into people's mouths. And then when I went back for a second appointment three or four months later, he said, look, you, you, this is actually getting worse. So, you know, you're not making yourself any better doing this. And I didn't want the surgery. I opted to not have it. But at that point, it kind of like I thought, like, we need to we need to be out of this now. There's no point in dragging on because, you know, I could end up, you know, in you know bedridden. Worst case scenario. Yeah. So we, we, we essentially kind of took that as, as a, a sign, a very <clears throat> strong sign that we should be bringing our plans forward as soon as possible. And, um, you know, that's that's how it kind of. Yeah, it, it went. And Nick sold the business basically as we made that decision. Well, let, let's just do a sidetrack. How did did you ever have the surgery done, or have you been able to control it without surgery? Then, um, I was toying up with the idea, I, and my neurosurgeon he was a really lovely chap, and he said to me, "Look, these things take a long, long time to heal." So, at the second appointment, when he said it was getting worse, 
I kind of just went into this program of, I just went to the gym. I used to go to the gym to just do core strength exercises and gradually it got better. And touch wood, um, I've been absolutely fine for since, what was that, 2013? Yeah. Yeah, for seven years. Yeah. And one thing that swung it for me, because dentistry is full of litigation. And I remember I was on the phone to um, the dental legal team that every dentist has to have. You have to have, you know, uh, dental indemnity. And so I was on the phone up to a legal advisor from the British Dental Association um, one day asking him for some advice. And we just happened to talk about why he was a dental advisor, because dental, dental lawyers have to be dentists initially. And I said, oh, what made you transition from being a, a, a clinician to being a, a dental lawyer? And he said, well, I, I did my back. My back went and um, I was offered the surgery. My friend's back went. He was offered the surgery and he had the surgery and woke up a quadriplegic. And, and at that point, you know, the, any, any thought that I was going to have surgery evaporated. Mm, okay, okay. The reason I ask is right now I've got two herniated discs in my neck. This is the second time this has happened. And basically... Yeah, so I mean, I'm finding sort of the same sort of uh, problems that you're talking about, and I'm you know the here they're saying the last thing you'll do is get get surgery. Right now, we're going to uh, stretch you out and do some uh, do a bunch of other therapeutics before you ever go in for surgery. But yeah, I mean, I and my fr- and this is the second time this has happened to me. The first time was about five years ago, and through the procedure then, and it's held up until now, and so now I've got the pain in my neck again. So I was just kind of curious as how you dealt with it. So you're still keeping up the exercise then? I am, but there's another part to the story. So I luckily had private medical insurance um, from um, work. So I went to a pretty high-end neurosurgeon to diagnose me, to do the MRI scans, to plan the surgery. The pub next to the marina in this little village in the east coast of England was full of... if you ever watch Lord of the Rings, it, it looked like it looks like the pubs in Lord of the Rings. It's full of people with beards and kind of like tall tales, pipes and telling telling yarns about things. So I used to hobble in with my back, um, my back problems on a Friday night. And eventually someone said to me, you need to go and see the back witch. And um, I, oh, no, like, really? And apparently there was this woman. There is a woman um, in another village who is known as the back witch. And she is known for fixing back problems. And honestly, I I went there out of sheer desperation to see this woman. And she was an absolute quack, a real quack. And um, she was about 60. She was completely spherical. And she had no medical training at all. And, you know, I remember getting onto her couch and the... the you know, that the window is full of dream catchers. She's got the certificates on the wall for like distinction in psychic phenomenon, you know, <laughs> merits in crystal reading. And I'm sitting here going, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing? Honestly, this woman, I went to her oh, what? what, 10 times? Yeah. And she fixed me. It was hilarious. And, and, <laughs> I, and, and I'm, I'm just sitting there going, how? And at the end of it, I, she was like, she had this very, very high pitched voice. And at the end of it, um, I said to her, I said, Honestly, I said, how, like, where did you get your training? Like, how, where have you trained for all this? And she said, honestly, this is what she said. She said, I used to work in a kennel. And 
I used to work with old dogs. And when old dogs' backs, legs used to go, they normally get put down. But I found that if I manipulated their spines in a certain way, I could get old dogs' legs working again. And, yep, lo and behold, she fixed me. <laughs> she got another old dog working. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, and since then, you know, anyone in, in, in North Kent with back problems, you have to go and see the back witch. Yeah. She's got a so lot that, of... That's a true story. She, she, uh, yeah. She's probably got a lot of new business coming after this uh, podcast. And you probably never told this... <laughs> you probably never told this story on your YouTube channel, have you? No, not no, no. no I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that she'd get into a lot of trouble because I'm not sure she's meant to be practicing like some pretty high end stuff. But yeah, honestly, but yeah, she she fixed me, didn't she? Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. <laughs> All right. So, where was your boat launched when you when you bought your Southerly? Where did you launch it, and uh, how long were you playing? You know, so this is about four years after you launched it that you were sailing around, getting ready for the hop off for the big adventure or what did you do during that four or five year period of time so ruby rose we she was launched in april 2012 and she was launched in southampton which is in the south of england we sailed her back to our marina on the east coast of the uk and we left about three years later so we had three years of getting used to this boat now we didn't have, as I said, we had to take a fairly sizable loan out to buy the boat. So we bought it almost bare. There was, there was not a lot of equipment on it. We just got the basic stuff put on. And so over the coming three years, literally every penny we made, we put into either fitting the boat out or, say, putting it into a slush fund for our trip. So we spent a couple of years firstly financially getting, you know, saving. Secondly, fitting the boat out. But also in the previous two summers, in the two summers before we left, we did six-week cruises. So rather than just do a week away, we I put a locum into the practice, and we sailed down to the southwest of France, we, well, western France, down to La Rochelle, to see how we would get on living on a boat for six weeks, as a, as a, you know at a time. Yeah. And we did that two years in a row, and honestly. Um, it really confirmed what we'd, yeah. we'd yeah, been suspecting but hadn't actually experienced, which was that we, we just absolutely loved it. We were, we were quite devastated. We had to go back to yeah. work after those two kind of summers off. Um, and, yeah, it was just amazing. It was exactly – it really exceeded our expectations. So I think that was when we started to really kind of get really excited about the prospect of – well, the possibilities that we could essentially take this boat anywhere in the world and uh, – yeah, the, the kind of a whole world of opportunities opened up to us. All right. So then you make the big hop. You sell the business, you release the apartment, and you take off. What was your itinerary, and where did you go on that first cruising season? Well, I, with us, as I said already, we you, we have to kind of set ourselves goals to push ourselves. And the first thing we did, uh, the year before we left, we signed up for the Atlantic Rally Um <laughs> from the Canary Islands to the Caribbean. <clears throat> so we knew that by the beginning of November, we had to be in Las Palmas in the Canary Islands. And we set off in May. And so that itinerary had to take us wherever we went. We, it had to take us from the east coast of England, down the coast, across the Bay of Biscay, and then onwards to the Canaries. Um, so we knew that we were pretty pushed for time. And... 
I say that now we were pushed for time. I didn't think we were pushed for time then now because we've slowed down as we've got as we've spent more time cruising. One thing we do realize is that no matter how how slow you think you're going, you're not going slow enough. So we crossed Biscay. We spent time in Spain, in Portugal. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Down. Stop. Stop. Most people- stop. Stop. Let's talk about the Bay of Biscay. How was the crossing? Did you time it right? I mean, that's that's got a notorious reputation. So let's talk about that just for a second. So Biscay, we port hopped from the east coast of England all the way to Cornwall in the very southwest. And we it was our first big passage. And when I say big, it was 500 miles or 450 miles. And we were in a place called Falmouth in Cornwall. And it's a beautiful, old, very, very Cornish, very Cornish town. And we were stuck there for three weeks waiting waiting for a weather window and we saw boats because it's a it's a it's a famous jump jump point across Biscay and we saw boats leaving um and in many cases turning around and coming yeah, back yeah there's a whole kind of contingent because we're all sat, sat there waiting for the weather together and I was I wouldn't say it was late in the season but it was definitely kind of it, it was early June so everyone yeah. wanted to start getting south and yeah a, a few of them left and turned around and came back the next day and said oh, that was the worst decision and so it just yeah this was our first offshore pass and it was Bay of Biscay, obviously, you know, there's a lot of potential there for, for issues. And so we, we waited for three weeks for, you yeah. know, the perfect weather to cross the, the Bay of Biscay. And I think in our previous two summers of going down to Western France, we'd done half the passage anyway. You know, it was it was just about, you know, once you get past Ushant Lighthouse, you know, you just essentially, we would... Yeah, and we, to- we'd, we'd done a couple of overnighters as well, obviously preparing to do an offshore passage. So we kind of had the, the watch this set up and we knew what it was like to, to do you know kind of 20 I think we've done about 24 30 hours or so um passage so yeah we had a little bit of experience I guess we just stepped up you know one step at a time um as you know is probably the best way of doing it and so we did feel quite confident we were, we were pretty excited to do Biscay um and certainly when we got to Spain after it, we were very excited yeah I mean it took us 72 hours or thereabouts about three days um the first two days pretty pleasant sailing actually yeah, the pleasant. third day the morning the last kind of 12 hours, the wind picked up, and I think it was 30, 35 knots. But we have a medium, you know, medium displacement boat, which is pretty well set up for, for you know, heavy weather sailing. Not even heavy weather, but like high winds. So, you know, for us, we just reefed down, sat tight, and, you know, zipped along. Yeah, and we got to Spain at the end of it all, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got there. Yeah, really nice reward. Oh, hold on a second. Let me turn off this. All right. I should probably turn off my phone. So um, so where did you go from? Did you leave from Brest and head straight across to Spain or the tip of Portugal? Or what was your, uh, so your, your itinerary? We, left from, we did one jump, from, one jump from Falmouth to A Coruña, oh, which is okay. in... So, that was a, so we, did, we didn't stop in France that time. And the, one of the reasons was because to, we were, the rally that we were doing, which was the ARC, they have a 500-mile qualifying passage that you have to complete before you, you do, before you start. So they want to know that you've done a few days offshore. So we went straight to A Coruña. Um, and then we kind of like port hopped down through the Spanish Rias, which I think Spanish Rias probably are still one of our favorite cruising grounds yeah, ever. Yeah, they were just but, amazing. And to tell you the truth, one of the greatest joys I have as a cruiser is waking up and looking out of the boat windows while making breakfast and just seeing a different view and 
being in the Spanish rears, it was stunning. It was culturally so completely different. I think it was the first time we'd ever been to Spain, hadn't it? or the first time we'd been to any part like that. I think it was the first time we'd been yeah. to Spain. Yeah, and, and we spent a few weeks there. We would have spent a lot longer, but as Nick said, we had this uh, rally that we'd already signed up for. I think, in retrospect, probably we shouldn't have signed up so early. We should have just taken our time um, going okay. down. We'd still be there. We'd yeah, be there. probably. But anyway, so we had to, um, you know, get going. So, we yeah, we hopped all along the, the Portuguese coast, and that was amazing, um, really beautiful. We fell in love with Portugal, and we settled on the Algarve, um, and then we went back to Spain, um, went back to... Cardiz, and then crossed the Strait of Gibraltar and went to Morocco. And we actually cruised around Morocco for about a month um, on our way south, which yep. was really amazing. That that, was... That's the path. That's the, the path least trodden. Uh, a lot of people are pretty nervous about going to Arab countries in sailing boats. Um, the, 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 the conventional route is to go from Spain or Portugal across the Madeira and then onto the Canary Islands. But we, I've always wanted to visit Morocco, and we sailed across. Uh, as Therese said, the Strait of Gibraltar handed into Rabat. Um, just, it's in, just so incredibly beautiful as, yeah. a, as a cruising destination. And Rabat was a perfect introduction because, the, the, first of all, the marina was amazing. It was better than any marina that we've been in all year. Uh, and Rabat itself was, was absolutely beautiful. It was kind of the perfect uh, uh, introduction. It's a, me it's a medieval Morocco. town, you know, medieval high-walled citadel. You know, you kind of sail between these rocks, you know, coming in off the Atlantic and literally... Uh, of all the places that we've ever been, and as I said earlier, Teresa and I met traveling through India. So we've seen far-flung places, villages in India, in Nepal, you know, up in the Himalayas. There was a place called Saleh, which was the, 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 the town opposite Rabat. And that town, um, it, it was the, it, honestly, it was like going back to biblical times. I've never seen anything like it. You know, medieval streets, the donkeys carrying gas canisters. There's like people beheading chickens. You know, it, people selling vegetables. If you took a, it, it was literally like like something from the Bible. Incredible, incredible. But people were so kind to us. Hey, let me ask you a question. You keep you mentioned the Spanish rias, and as you know, or you may not know, but I always have Google Earth open when I'm talking to people, so I can sort of follow around on Google Earth where they're talking about. Where is the Spanish rias? So if you look um, the very northwest tip of Spain, so okay. between mm -hmm. if you look at look for A Coruña and then between A Coruña and Bayona, that's about sixty miles. There's a lot of inlets. It's think, consider it like the Spanish version of the fjords, the Norwegian fjords. There's lots of these inlets, and there's towns like Mur Muros, Combado, and they are Bayona. Bayona. <laughs> and you you've got these rivers, and there's these beautiful stone kind of really ancient towns there. The mm. anchorages are beautiful. The seafood is still the best we've ever had. I've never had seafood like it anywhere. And, you know, we've been, we live at sea, we eat <laughs> our own seafood and we, you know, we've, we've sailed the Caribbean, we've sailed the Mediterranean, we've sailed, you know, into, into the U.S. waters. The seafood in, 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 in Northwest Spain is un, unbe, unbeatable, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I'm looking at it. So I see a city, uh, Ribadaro, Ribadaro, Dio, Dio, Dio. Is that, that's one of them that you'd be talking about right there, correct? Because there's a river coming down. So. Yeah, Probably, that, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that yeah. rings a bell. If you check, just type in Muros, M-U-R-O-S, in, in I think there's actually two R's, but yeah, uh, yeah. maybe. Doing it? Okay. All those areas. 
Moro, Spain. There we go. Let's search. Find it. Yeah. Okay, well, it's taking me inland. Okay, that's the wrong one. <laughs> okay. I'm going way, okay. I'm going way far away. That's all right. Northwest part of yeah. Spain along the coast. So you're actually right. in the Bay of Biscay when you're doing that. So you haven't rounded the corner when you're going along those uh, the Spanish right. cities in. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah ju- you, you just round the corner. Yeah, you, you start in the Bay of Biscay and then you round the, I think it's Cap Finister and, um, yeah. and, and then you're you know, around the corner. Yeah. Okay, so then you work down your way down the coast and and then go into Rabat. All right, so that was your big hop, and that, that you're spending the summer doing that. And I agree with you; you're going way too fast. I call it roller skating through the Louvre. So so, <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. I know. It was it was really uh, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, and as I said, you know, we were a little bit late jumping from England, um, so we really start that we had hoped for. So, yeah, we put ourselves on. And we also wanted to arrive at the Canaries very early because, you know, we wanted to prepare ourselves and the boat, um, both kind of, you know, mentally as well as, you know, prepare the boat in every other way for the Atlantic crossing. So we wanted to be in the Canaries. I think we said we wanted to be there at least four weeks before we were due to cross the Atlantic. So, yeah, we spent, yeah, we went really quickly and uh, we put ourselves under a lot of pressure. And I, I wouldn't advise, you know, other people to do it that way because I think that we rushed through some amazing places, but you know, you have to learn these things the hard way. But you're you're doing some of this pretty late in the season too, because you know the Canary, the crossing of the Atlantic is usually December, uh, no, November, December time frame. So, uh, so you're doing some of this pretty yeah in pretty so sketchy one, weather, I would think. One the, uh, no, the, one of the things is that the the other motivation for getting south as soon as possible is that. The passage from, you know, anywhere in southern Spain, we went from Cardiz, but you can go from Lagos in southern Portugal or anywhere on Algarve, whatever. But that passage south um, really does need to be done kind of before October um, because then the prevailing winds change. So you get the you get the northerly winds up until, you know, roughly October and then, and then you know, it becomes a lot less certain. So we knew we wanted to make sure that we got that weather window. So we knew we wanted to get down south before, you know, by the end of September, say. And so we spent September in Morocco and then we were in the Canaries for well, beginning of October, I think. Um, and then we actually crossed the Atlantic on, I think we left on, what? 22nd of November. 22nd of November, yeah. So, oh, maybe we are in the Canaries for about five weeks then. Yeah, well, yeah. We, did, we did three islands. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we did. We, we crossed from Morocco to Lanzarote and then we went to Bertaventura and then we went to Grand Canaria. So, yeah, we were in the Canaries for about about five weeks or so and uh yeah you're absolutely right it's, it's about as early as you can cross the atlantic kind of late november that's about as early as you want to go but um you know we're part of a rally i think that had it been up to us we may have left you know a little bit later but we were part of a rally so we had to leave you know on the day that everyone else leaves really yeah yeah so so that was your big hop then so you spent the uh, winter in the caribbean then Yeah, we, 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 it took us three weeks, 21 days to the hour to cross the Atlantic. We had a pretty windy year, I think. Um, yeah, a lot of records were broken that year. It was, it was pretty windy, but um, that was good. You know, we yeah. only spent three weeks at sea. So. so, yeah, we had our first Christmas in the Caribbean. We, by the time we got to the Caribbean, we knew a lot of the entrance on the, on, on the, on the rally. So 
from our point of view, we had a lot of friends already there. And there, basically, when everyone gets there, there was a huge collective sigh of relief. For most people, it's, it's their first time. You know, the, the, the morning that the arc started, I think probably, aside from my, the day my, I got my, my medical final results, it's the most terrified I've ever been of anything. I was, you know, I kind of went beyond being scared into this kind of strange twilight zone of calm. <laughs> but, you know, you are terrified because you're doing something which is so, you know, outside of your comfort zone. So, you know, when you get to the Caribbean, you know, it's all done. And yeah. you know that, you know, it's the beginning. It, we got in, I think, um, you know, the 10th of December. We literally had the whole Caribbean sailing season ahead of us. Mm. We had all our friends there we had christmas just around the corner we'd all stocked up on just about everything christmas while we we're in spain so we had you know just, with the exception of a turkey we had just about <laughs> everything we needed um to celebrate christmas so it was there it was just it was a pretty huge party that went on for a few weeks yeah definitely <laughs> yeah so what was your uh, sale configuration for the crossing most of the time uh, we went with um a main and a jib um goose wing for most of the crossing. And the reason for that is we carry a lot of different sails. So our sail wardrobe, with the exception of storm sails, a main, uh, a self-tacking jib, um, a parasailer and a code zero. Now the parasailer is a fantastic piece of kit, but because the year was so windy, um, we decided, well, we don't fly colored sails at night. So what we would, I think we went down with literally a, a, a reef, jib and a two to three reefs in the main for most of the crossing well yes yeah, so the first three days we had three it was, it was very windy because you're in the wind acceleration zone leaving the, the canaries so it's usually very windy and it was particularly windy that year i think it was around 30 to 40 knots gusting up to 40 knots um as we we're leaving grand canarias so we had a triple reef main and i don't know a little bit about i guess and that was how we you know that was our sail plan for the first three days and then it calmed down and we had almost no wind which was actually really lovely because we got a chance to like have a shower yeah, clean, the boat, <laughs> clean the boat up like recover but you know cook some food and it was really nice and then you know the trade wind started to build in again and yeah that's when we we had hoped that we'd be able to sail practically the whole way under parasailer but as Nick said once it got to kind of gusting up to you know low 20s really the parasailer had to come down um, and that happened a lot uh, so we ended up having to you know put it up take it down put it up take it down and um you know when it's kind of between 20 and 25 knots it doesn't really matter you, you you're going as fast as the boat can handle anyway so you might as well just have your white yeah. sails up and it's a lot easier for everyone to manage because you don't need to leave the cockpit so yeah for, for ease um it, it was mainly white, white sails but we got the sail up a few times yeah, a few times yeah. yeah but most of it I said, because of the wind and then you, you and can... then you have squalls yeah. the last kind of 10 days or so you've got squalls and that complicates things so yeah it it was it was mainly white sails goose winged. Was it just the two of you on the crossing, or did you bring on any other crew? No, no we had those two two of our friends turned up, so there were four of us for 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 that crossing. Um, and you know, I suppose that the, the the limitation for us was that you know carrying food for four people for three weeks plus you know another week because you need to take a little bit of spare food mm-hmm. and making sure you've got water and spare water and a water water maker so the boat was pretty laden down you know with fruit nets and you know there was nets strung over the back of the boat with mangoes in there were you know all the bilge lockers were full of cans and we just had yeah the entire we had a massive like 
um, laundry basket thing that we got from some store in Spain. Full of, full of Yeah, full of vegetables because we had nowhere else to put vegetables. So it just kind of sat on the floor and yeah, it was it was pretty uh, laden down. <laughs> and then, yeah, we had two friends with us as well crewing. And uh, yeah, they, well, we did explain to them that it was the four cabin that was theirs and they would have to share it. And then, you know, because two men sharing a bed is obviously out of the question. They um, ended up, one of them ended up on the, uh, uh, on, on the settee. So then that kind of turned into a bit of a communal sleeping area as well. So, which was fine. Well, it's the most comfortable place on the boat. Yeah, it really, he had the best sleep out of all of us um but yeah so it was it was interesting it was good we all got along pretty well and uh, i think that you know um everyone was glad to get to the other end but it was it was their first time as well you know it was a first experience for all of us so it was good to do it together yeah okay yeah that sounds good because then you could get some sleep too with that that large of a crew yeah yeah so yeah that, that's right i mean we actually um just quickly we we did the atlantic in you know coming back the other way um, a couple of years ago and we only had the one crew member for that um, but we actually found that the three of us it wasn't an interpersonal thing it was just three people worked almost better than four people because we did three hour watches so you get her three hours on and then you get six hours off so you kind of had almost as much sleep anyway with just three of us um, and it was a lot easier to manage the boat and you know um, provisioning and everything with just three of us so I think that was the, the better setup but yeah four, four was good as well in my boat it won't handle more than three people but when i did my atlantic crossing three was ideal yeah because you could sleep yeah. six hours without any trouble at all nobody felt like they were overdoing it no it was, it was perfect yeah three people was, was absolutely ideal so talk about that first cruising season in the caribbean it was i suppose it's, i wish i could go do it again for the first time uh, looking back on it again we rushed everything we, re we really did rush <laughs> we kind of knew that because mm. of hurricane season it was our first hurricane season we needed to be in a certain place by the first of july and have the boat out of the water so we all had the boat out of the water, all had the boat out yeah. of the water. so the kind of vague plan and we had we got into st lucia which is in the middle of the windwards and our initial plan and i i laugh at this now thinking about it was that season one of the caribbean in. So between January and June, we were going to sail down to Grenada. Then we were going to sail back up to Antigua. Then we were going to sail to the Bahamas. Then we were going to sail to New York. Um, honestly, I, I, <laughs> I can't believe that was the plan. <laughs> um, and, you know, we did it. We just zipped around. And I think one le the hardest lesson that we have had to learn in, in all these years is to, just, you know, just to slow down. And what happened was we went down to Grenada we had an amazing time in Grenada and then we slowly went up through the island through the Windward Islands and we kind of you know got to Martinique Martinique was amazing and then we by the time we went to Martinique then off then to Dominica, Dominica and then finally ended up in after Guadeloupe in Antigua and we got to Antigua and suddenly all our friends happened to be there as well and we just said what's the point we, we just said isn't this nice just to be sat in one place for like a few weeks and there was like beach barbecues and there was a lot of socializing and there were happy hours and Antigua's classic week was there. this right. was about mid-April yeah so. so we were there for classics and you know everyone was anchored in Falmouth Harbour and just it was amazing it was so good and we just thought to ourselves why are we rushing and of course the clock's ticking and we think god we need to get you know out of hurricane season we've got so many miles we need to do and then 
I don't know, it just kind of slowly dawned on us that it was a terrible idea to try and push ourselves to go up to the US and... Um, and we knew that Antigua had a hurricane hole. So yeah, we went right. to we went to Jolly Harbour Marina and said, look, can you fit us in? They went, yeah, of course we can. Yeah. And yeah, we, we that was it. And then we stayed in Antigua for, the boat was in Antigua for 10 months, I think. Yeah, we so flew we, back to the UK yeah, for Yeah, we hauled out in June. Um, so we, we ended up spending about three months in Antigua towards the end of um, the sailing season, hauled out in June. And the boat spent all the hurricane season in um, Jolly Harbour in the boatyard there, um, which was fantastic. The, the guys there were, was so good, super professional. You know, it was just a great first experience yep. hauling the boat because we were nervous about hauling it out and leaving it in the middle of a like in in the middle of the hurricane zone. But um, yeah, it was they were so professional and it was all tied down and done like totally, you know, to the book. And uh, we came back just after Christmas and started, there she was waiting for us. And, and we started a YouTube channel. Yeah, that's right. That and, was we, <laughs> and then so, we decided to start a YouTube channel. So, so did your insurance company give you any stress over leaving it there or how did you arrange that with your insurance company? Well, that's back, this is pre, pre-OMA, pre, you know, pre all the chaos that occurred a few years later. Time, this, is, this was winter 2016. Okay. No, that, that basically we were with, we, we, we were with Pantaneous they have they, their their tropical storm policy gave us full cover if we were out of the water in a in a place they were happy with and if we were tied down so we they they strapped the boat down obviously took all the canvas off and they were happy to cover us like things have changed obviously now um so yeah at the t- time it was it was a pretty it was pretty easy and you know watching the the guys at Jolly Harbor and you know you know watching them work i think it gave us a hope a whole amount of confidence yeah. in knowing the boat was going to be safe. Yeah. And we talked to them and they just said, look, we've never, never had a, we've never lost a boat ever. Um, you know, and that's not just from hurricanes, but obviously people leaving their, their yachts in, um, you know, and then flying back home. The first time you worry about theft or, or you know, are, are we going to come back to find us that we left? You worry about mold, you worry about yeah. all sorts of stuff. And, you know, the, the local chandelier sold us all the things to stop mold, the, 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 the boatyard uh, security and fence is and we came back to find the boat as as we left it yeah. and that actually you said you watched our first episode that was it we came back to our boat as we as we left it and, and it was pretty joyous to be back actually. very joyous so, yeah, yeah. So. and then we, we'd learned our lesson well we said to ourselves that we'd learned our lesson but we do I don't know there is something a bit impatient about us we do tend to go perhaps a little bit faster than we should but certainly that second season we um, slowed down a lot and uh, yeah it, it was all the more enjoyable for for it, definitely. So, what did that uh, what did that run you? Now, your boat's oh, thirty. How how large is the southern? It's thirty eight feet 30, long. Yeah, thirty eight yeah, feet. She's a th- she was thirty eight foot. So, yeah. what did the boatyard charge you to be on the dry dock for that? Was it six months? You said. Uh, I can't. Do you know? No, I, I can't remember. It was so long ago. I, it wasn't extortionate. I know that they had different rates uh, according to length. So you pay something like forty five cents a foot arbitrarily up to 50 foot and then when you got to 50 foot you paid 65 cents a foot so they did penalize bigger yachts there um i did it, I, I don't remember it being thinking you know that's pretty reasonable for boat storage okay okay and i think the next season we were we did the same thing in charleston and i think it was actually more expensive in charleston oh it was yeah it was more expensive in charleston charleston which charleston south, carolina. south carolina south carolina okay south carolina. yeah all right 
So the next season you worked your you just kicked around some more in the Caribbean and then worked your way up to Charleston then. Yeah, exactly. So we continued north. Um, we actually we got to BBIs and we met another group of you know cruisers, liverboards, sailors. Um, you know we hung out with all sorts of people that that you know over those what, four or five weeks that yeah. we were there, from people just on charter holidays to people who lived there, and that really cemented in our minds you know what the cruising lifestyle is meant to be about it's meant to be about having fun and socializing you know kind of immersing yourself in the sailing community um you know making friends and you know sometimes you only spend one or two nights with these people and you still years later are very firm friends you haven't seen each other in a long time but you still feel very close to them and you know that experience a lot um where we'd meet you know a couple or you know a couple of other cruisers and you know years later we're still we still feel very close to them so yeah we had a couple of uh, well, we had a buddy boat that year, which made a, a difference as well. That was a different experience. So we buddy boated with um, another American couple, and we ended up going to the Bahamas with them. Um, and then we jumped north from the Bahamas, from the Abacos, up to Charleston in in one kind of you know one hit. Uh, I think that was about 400 miles. Yep. And we had planned, you know, once again, we had planned to cruise the East Coast, and then we got to Charleston. We thought, well, isn't this nice? and we kind of just stayed put there for a while so yeah we kind of had these what well, we really wanted to cruise more of the US but um, I think that we also needed to have a bit of downtime as well you know we've been on the go for I guess seven months by then and we just needed to you know have a little break as well so it was nice a nice change of pace to be in America after all that time in the Caribbean as well it was a lot of fun the friends that you're, you're referring to did a lot of these friends come from the rally or were these just no, friends? No. Interesting. Go ahead. You, so if you divide the Caribbean island chains into essentially the Windward Islands and the Leeward Islands, the Windward Islands go from south to north, which is from essentially Grenada up to Antigua. And then from Antigua to the Bahamas, it goes from east to west. In most of the Windward Islands were European people from the rally. As soon as we headed from Antigua towards the States, we found that the majority of the cruisers were American. American, American families, American couples. Yeah. And we also found that the ages of the cruisers were younger. So, you know, I think when we were cruising Europe and when we cruised, when we crossed the Atlantic into the, into the Windward Islands, most of the cruisers were kind of like retirees. Mm. Whereas there's a lot of, when we got to the, you know, the American boats, there was a lot of kind of cruisers in their 30s just taking a year out. And that made a big difference to us as well. I mean, it's not just people in their 30s, but... The, there seems to be a lot younger crews as well as the retirees. So, yeah, that kind of changed our sailing experience for that season quite a bit. Yeah, we, we as I said, we made some really close friends. And, I mean, we, ha we have friends of, you know, people from all different countries, all different ages. Um, but it was it was interesting having a different demographic of cruisers to, to hang out with. Okay. It, to be a demarcation, you know, the, the, the USBIs, obviously there are a lot of Americans there. Um, and then they go to the BBIs because the BBIs are so amazing. Um, but then, you know, you have to do it. Well, we did an overnight passage from from St. Martin to the BBIs. And I think it's about how far is it? I think it's about 90 miles or something. So about 160 miles. St. Martin to the BBIs? Yeah. Oh, OK. An overnight to them. Yeah, it took us 24 hours. All right. OK. Anyway, point being is that there is a longer passage to get to St. Martin. And so a lot, a lot of people just seem to get to the BBIs and think, well, this is as good as it gets, surely. And um, they kind of just hang around there for a very long time. And that's, you know, 
<laughs> that's who we met there. So, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. So, Nick, you tend to get seasick. How do you deal with it? Um, well, it, <laughs> I don't. In, in, in a nutshell, I, I tend to find that at the beginning of every season, um, I'm a, a lot more queasy than at the end of the season. By the end of the season, I can, you know, I can hang upside down in a locker sniffing diesel and eating French cheese. It doesn't cause me a problem. <laughs> yeah, but at the beginning of the season, um, I do find that I get pretty nauseous. And honestly, I, over the years, I've found that certain things affect uh, how seasick I get. And it, essentially, I still feel fat, fall foul of my own, you know, the, the, my, the causes of seasickness. So the first thing is caffeine. I don't drink any caffeine on passage. The first couple of days, that's pretty hard, um, but caffeine makes me seasick. The second thing is I don't drink alcohol um, the night before a short passage or uh, or until I'm over my seasickness. You know, while we're at sea, we tend to have one beer an evening. Um, on you know, we did this across the Atlantic. Everyone would have one one small, small drink in the evening just as a sundowner. And the third thing is um, when eat a heavy, stodgy meal at least an hour before you set off. One of my least favorite meals or food substances in the whole world is oatmeal. I hate oatmeal. Like honestly, there's there's probably a, there's a lot of things I'd eat that are, that are pretty nasty before I eat oatmeal. But oatmeal does line your stomach, and it's it's a pretty amazing cure for seasickness. It, it or does. preventative. Oh, preventative. Okay, I thought you were going to say that it made you vomit, but apparently it's the opposite. Then it tends to uh, settle, <laughs> no, no. settle your stomach. So okay. So it's it, caffeine, acidic food, alcohol that makes seasick a, a a belly full of carbs with no oil that's that you're fine you're, you're, you're good to go so literally i spoon down you know spoon down as i can with an hour before passage and i'm normally good and we have a lot of ginger on board as well we have ginger tea and ginger sweets so. ginger biscuits and ginger <laughs> ginger lozenges <laughs> anything ginger the problem is that nick loves ginger so much that he eats them all before we leave but i, I do try and explain to him that he'll regret that when he's feeling sick but that message yeah chris Crystallized ginger is a great, you know, if you've got if you've got a if you've got an issue with seasickness, then chewing a piece of crystallized ginger is, is a really or good remedy. A whole remedy. cup of ginger yeah. tea with honey, yeah. The thing about good. crystallized ginger is if you put it into a shot of rum, it also is amazing. <laughs> so <laughs> on the on the days leading up to the passage, I find that the the the, uh, the crystallized ginger kind of stores yes. get depleted. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you, what did you do uh, in the off season for the six months that you put your boat up on the heart? You headed back to England and. And did you re-rent your apartment? What? How did you deal with that? From, from our point of view, one of the kind of like the, the biggest problems we have or we had when we left is that we we have families that we need to go back to, you know, Teresa's parents and my parents. And in our whole budgetary planning for everything we needed, to, our expenses for um, our sailing, we budgeted for trips back home because I for us, we couldn't just sail off into the sunset and never see our parents. So between, you know, in our off seasons, where it's four or five months, I would spend, we'd spend, we'd split, literally split the time between my parents and Teresa's parents. Uh, obviously, Teresa's parents in Australia, my parents were in, in England. So um, for our first off season, we just, you know, we, we did, it, did it that way. And then our, by the time our second off season came about, we had, you know, a fair amount of editing and YouTube work to do. So, you know, at that point, we would our off season becomes our work season. So, where are you right now in the middle of this COVID? We're recording this on uh, 
November 10th, 2020th. The world's in lockdown. Where are you at right now? We are, Therese? Yeah, well, we're in Greece right now. And uh, I mean, this has been a bit of a strange year. Well, it's obviously been a strange year for, for the entire world. But for us personally, it's been a little bit stranger because we sold our boat about, I don't know, six weeks ago. So we're actually boatless for the first time in a very, very, very long time. So yeah, we're not kind of having an off season so much as a kind of transitional period between Ruby Rose and Ruby Rose 2, which is coming next year. So we're in Greece. We, we're in lockdown um, at the moment. Hopefully it doesn't last too much longer. Another apparently two and a half weeks weeks and uh yeah we're as nick said you know nowadays we obviously try and spend time with family as much as possible but essentially you know this is a chance for us to catch on all that editing and to focus on kind of the more i don't know well everything else that, that has to do with running a youtube channel that isn't sailing and filming so yeah, editing marketing administration planning all that kind of stuff so Education. so what yeah <laughs> so where in greece are you um, the island of Rhodes. Rhodes, okay. It's uh, okay. on Dodecanese island chains. Why did you choose that particular island? My parents have been coming here for 25 years, so for us, it's pretty easy. You know, we know the area pretty well. Um, We've got some friends here, yeah. and yeah, we know all the local—not all the locals. We know a lot of the locals. We know, you know, a lot of the local business owners. So it just felt like a comfortable place for us to spend our time the weather's beautiful obviously you know um it's reasonably priced and yeah. yeah there's it was either that or we we kind of saw that london was going into lockdown you know we come we come from france this season we sailed we obviously we sailed through france this year and you know we spent time in lockdown there we then kind of went to the channel islands got quarantined in the channel islands you know and just escaped that then we got to the uk and after two weeks there we you know, we heard that that was going into lockdown, so we ran off to Greece and lockdown. <laughs> and now we're in lockdown. It caught up with us. It caught up with us three days ago. Yeah. So we've been on the run from lockdown for a while, but you know, <laughs> finally, finally, we got caught. So now you have to be in quarantine for 14 days. Once you get there, is that how they're doing it? No, no, the, no we we didn't have to quarantine when we got here, but Greece went into a full lockdown three days ago. Oh, so we okay. are um, when we can go out to buy food, you know, but there's procedures you've got to go through in very Greek fashion. You know, um, you've got to get pr approval through text message to leave the house. So, I mean, the, the lockdown's for three weeks, and you know, it's it, you know, if it, if it does, if it helps people and you know reduces uh, hospital admission rates, then it's going to be a good thing for us. You know, we've got so much work to do. Um, I think we've got about five months worth of work stacked up. So, you know, we've got an internet connection and you know a couple of laptops. So, yeah, um, actually, have not having to do boat chores and not having to fix a boat. Just get up in the morning, edit, work, and then, you know, enjoy the lockdown that way. Have you ever been over to the little island of Kalki, one of my favorite spots? Kalki? No, we've, you know what? We, we, we say this every, every time we come here. We should go to Halki. We should go to Santorini. We should go to Minos. We should go to all these places. We never go because <laughs> we, we just... I, I think we normally come here like in, in, in high summer. And if you've been here in high summer, you know that the heat it's is just... So it just drains you. So, you know, you... you Arrival with intentions. We normally come out for a week or so every every year, and um, you know nothing gets done. So, but no, it's 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 on the list, and we will go one day. Yeah, we're hoping <laughs> to sail this area, ideally in Ruby Rose too. Um, so that would be, you know, that it's all on our list. Everything in the world is on our list, but Greece is definitely very high on our list. So we definitely need to get here on our own boat. 
All right. So we've already been talking almost an hour, and we've barely scratched the surface. Give us a give us um, a story on how you started the YouTube channel, where you're at on the YouTube channel, and how you got a deal with Seawind Catamarans. Well, the YouTube channel started three years ago, and it started off very much as a hobby, really, because, as we said earlier, we spent about six or seven months away from the boat, and we were seeing family, and we did a little bit of traveling, and we it gave us a chance to kind of reflect on what we were loving about this massive lifestyle change and what the gaps were, because we had realized that there were some there was something missing from our lives for sure and we could, it took us a little while to you know really pin down what that was and it was a strange feeling really because you know we we're meant to be living the dream and we were but we still felt that there was something that was missing so we happened to be in Singapore airport you know en route to Australia and uh, you know in airports obviously there's lots of camera shops etc and so we bought a very cheap camera it was only like $300. It was this little compact camera. And we bought a little microphone and we had our 10 year old MacBook and we just, you know, learned how to use the free editing software on this old MacBook. And we just figured, you know, it would give us something to do. It would give us a hobby. It would allow our family and friends to kind of work out what it is that we were doing with our time because it was kind of hard to explain, you know, to our parents, particularly who sometimes were a little bit worried about what we're up to, um, you know from a safety point of view, what our lifestyle actually was all about. So it, we kind of thought that it would be a good way of, you know, communicating with our friends and family what we were doing. And it would provide a creative outlet for, well, I guess I'm, I'm the one who started it. So I was after like a creative outlet, you know, some intellectual simulation. And um, it kind of just snowballed from there because we didn't really expect it to turn into anything. We just thought it would be something our friends and family watched. And then we realized that people that we'd never met before were watching our videos, which was Quite. Well, you had a blog, didn't you? We had a blog. Yeah, I had a blog, and and then yeah, obviously the 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 vlog, you know, took over the blog. Um, but yeah, it, it was quite a thrill when people started watching our videos that were outside our own circle. I guess that's what happens when you put stuff up on the internet. And then yeah, we just you know kind of it grew from there, and it uh, it, it kind of began, began it became something else. It wasn't a hobby anymore. It became something. It's it's kind of our own it's yeah, our own thing yeah, yeah we let the beast out of the cage <laughs> we haven't managed to control it yet so yeah. i mean that was three years ago um the sea wind thing that was again i what happened was when we were in charleston the backstory to this is we had two stark choices we were either going to um sail the boat down to down the florida keys across to cuba and um then through the panama canal onto the south pacific from our point of view, I think we realized at that point that the boat was too small. So we came to we came to the decision we have to sell. We, we need a bigger boat. We definitely want to go to the South Pacific, but, you know, we're going to have to find something bigger. So we took the boat back to the UK and, um, you know, it took us three years to get back to the UK. Anyway, our decision process, we decided we were going to buy a catamaran. And, you know, that is a whole there's a whole can of warp ass that you open when you decide to move from monohull a catamaran and people will tell you one is better than the other and our the reason we decided to move to cat was essentially that we worked out through 
talking to cruisers from our own experience, that we spend about 90% of our time at anchor and 10% sailing. And that is, seems to be a, a constant amongst long-term cruisers. So in, it's difficult to argue that a catamaran is better at anchor than at monohull. So when you were going cat, we started to go to boat shows. We knew nothing about catamarans. I knew a lot about monohull. And so we, um, we just started researching catamarans. And we went to boat shows and we started videoing and you know, making reviews of catamarans. And that, again, took us in a completely different direction. People started watching our catamaran reviews and people started perking up because I'm not sure whether it's because we're not, well, we're in, you know, I'm English, Teresa's Australian, and we're not brokers, so we didn't, have anything, we didn't have anything to gain by being nice about boats that we didn't like. So I, they were pretty upfront reviews. I don't think we were kind of like slanderous or, you know, in any way about anything, but we did say, look, I don't like this, this doesn't work, that doesn't work, this is really nice that doesn't work, change this. And eventually, you know, we did 19 catamaran reviews. We reviewed just about everything, everything we could go and see that was on our radar. And we had a kind of between 40 and 50 foot. We knew what our budget was, but then we saw things out of our budget, out of our kind of size range. And eventually we got to Seawinds and they do two models that we were interested in and neither really, what, the 1260, which is probably two footer was almost but it, it, it was as close as we were going to come to perfection. They have a 52-foot model, which was just too big for us and too fast for us. And we struck up a really kind of good relationship with them. And they said, look, we've got something really on the drawing board. It's 45-foot. It, it seems to tick every box that you have told us or told the internet about. But in addition to that, why don't you tell us what you want want to put into this boat and we'll see if we can do it for you um and not just our boat but the whole production run of these boats so that to me having kind of like been pretty much into boat design since i started sailing was like a, you know i'm like this is the, the best thing ever and so we set up a series of meetings with them we went to them with three i think 50 56 or 57 design features we wanted integrated into this new boat on three pages of uh, paper, and they integrated all of them. I think all but one. There was one that they couldn't, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't put onto the boat. It's nothing to do with the design of the hulls or the performance. It's to do with what, what we think uh, a dedicated blue water liverboard needs to have on board. Some things are really simple. Some things are like pretty complicated. Some things are lifestyle. Some things are environmental. And so there's a whole spectrum of things we want to put onto this boat and it's gonna it is and we're pretty excited about it so where is the boat being manufactured then vietnam so sea wind is an australian company they 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 build all their all their catamarans in in vietnam in ho chi minh city okay so okay. that's our next stop after this we'll be heading as soon as the borders open that's yeah. where we'll be going okay because i actually before we started talking i i searched for sea wind and I, it wasn't really obvious. I could see some pictures of the catamarans. I looked for your number specifically, and I guess they do have a few of those Seawind 1370s out. And that's what it's designated as, right? No. The, the, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's what it's called. They, they haven't started yet. They're, they're still, um, well, they're, they're yet to start hole number one. I think they're due to start that in April yeah. or so. 
Um, so yeah, that's kind of all underway at the moment. And Hull Number One will be launched. Well, obviously just for Hull Number Two. We're Hull Number Two, so we're expecting ours late next year. So. Oh, that'll be great. You know, it's been a joy talking to you, but we've gone on about an hour, and that's about how long I want to limit my interviews to. Uh, it sounds like we have more to talk about. Should we try to schedule another interview some other time? Yeah, oh, yeah, we'd love to. We'd Just, love that. Yeah, that'd be, yeah, be fantastic to you know to catch up and you know continue the story. All right, then we will. But for today, that's going to have to be it because I've got to actually do my day job, and we've gone over an hour. So, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Nick and Teresa, uh, we will catch up further Thank in, in the future. Okay, talk to you later. Bye-bye. Lovely. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. The website for Sailing in the Mediterranean and beyond is www.medsailor.com. Again, medsailor.com. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f*** gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it.